0: Since the priest isn't going to talk about the Eucharist, he might as well pray. Pray, I guess. Yeah, I'll I'll talk to you about the Eucharist when I have my have my teaching mass. It'll all tie together beautifully. So let us pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you so loved the world that you poured yourself out as food for the hungry, as bread for those or need of nourishment even in bethlehem that house of bread you laid yourself in that manger that food for animals to be food for the world you preach to those i am the bread of life whoever eats shall never die we ask you to bless this teaching bless these words that we will hear that we may not be as the unbelieving crowd saying this teaching is hard but instead say with peter our first Pope Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life your words spirit and truth your words are eternal life your word have been made the living bread for us we ask all this through Christ our Lord amen in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit amen
1: well it is kind of uh, Odd as uh, Father mentioned, the priest is not speaking about the Eucharist tonight. You have a lay person, um, and a lay person that's really not worthy to speak about the Eucharist uh, as the most important, essential thing in the Catholic faith for us. And so, it's it is a privilege uh, to speak about this um, and and talk about how it's been impactful in my life, as well as just kind of laying out what the Church uh, teaches. So, if you have handouts, and you enjoy handouts. Um, You may like the ones you get tonight because they're long, and that's how I like to do handouts. Um, That's how I learn. I listen, and I go home, and I reread notes, and then I can study on my own. So within the notes, they're packed. There's over 50 references to Scripture in here, over 20 citations of the Catechism. So you certainly could take these notes and do your own little Bible study yourself and break these things down and open them up, and I would strongly encourage you to do that. And just... Uh, to set the stage a little bit um i have a strong passion for scripture but this book radically changed my life and so i talk about it as often as i can um how my encounter with scripture just reoriented my whole life ultimately uh brought me back to the catholic church because i was raised catholic and then uh left looks like we got some technical
0: i think it's muted
1: okay i'm muted how about now now you can hear me real good Okay, you probably could hear me fine before. Um, But we have a packed house. This is awesome to see this many people here at at RCIA. Thanks for coming. Uh, The parents that have uh, students that will be receiving First Communion, hopefully, this can uh, be challenging and insightful and helpful as you uh, raise them in the faith and teach them and instruct them about the Eucharist. And so uh, we'll dive in here. I wanted to share um, from the book of Proverbs. If you have the Bible, you can open it up to the book of Proverbs. It's about in the middle. And chapter two has been a very meaningful passage for me and very impactful. Uh, Maybe one of the first things that really stirred me to really study scripture. And this is what it says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it as silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This whole movement where this exhortation to his son to to go after God and search for him as hidden treasure got me excited when i read that i i like that idea of hidden treasure and and hunting for something and searching and this book is something that you can do that in you can mine out all kinds of treasure within this book and learn all kinds of amazing things about our god um maybe you feel like you understand the eucharist tonight have a good idea of it or maybe uh, what could someone really tell me about it that i haven't heard before Hopefully tonight you'll be exposed to a few things that might raise your eyebrows a little bit as we think about it. We can't fully understand the Eucharist unless we take a sweeping look from Genesis to Revelation. The entire Bible helps us understand the Eucharist. And so what we'll do is I'll lay out um, some of my concerns that I want to share. Then we'll look at the Eucharist in the context of salvation history, which is just Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible, and a high overview of, of what we can learn. And then we'll look at two things in particular, how the Eucharist is a memorial sacrifice and how Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. And then lastly, we'll look at what it means to be properly disposed and maybe some practical helps uh, to prepare you to do that. So starting with the introduction, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before, but it's called uh, something you may hear is being called sacramentalized, but not evangelized. And this is something that's very prevalent in the church. And what it means is that you've received sacraments. You've gone through the motions of those things, baptism, communion, confirmation, but you've never come to a true understanding of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know him personally in the sense of you talk to him every day. You tell him about your day, what's going on. You cry out to him for things that you need, not just when it's going bad, but all the time. You have this relationship that's ongoing with him. That's the part that's missing in many parishes and many Catholics lives and why the stats would tell us we're losing numbers like crazy because of this. Um, and so we need to do something about that. And personally, myself, I've experienced that. So I was raised Catholic, as I mentioned, I was baptized, I received First Communion. I was confirmed as a senior in high school. And in none of that time did I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, where I read the Bible, where I prayed intentionally to want to get to know him, where I was living for him, so that my life was oriented around him and the church. In no way did that ever happen through that time. Then I went off to college and continued to live that way until I had an encounter with Christ in the scriptures. And when I started reading scripture, that's when my life started changing. And I came to understand Um, that I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. He wasn't the most important thing in my life. I was not excited to get to know him or spend time with him or go to church or adoration or pray, any of those things. None of that was alive in me in those days. And so that's a concern of mine, that we continue to see that in the church and right here in our parish. So point A is a quotation out of a book, which sums some of this up. And it says, simply moving through Catholic institutions does not ensure a young person encounters the Lord or develops a strong personal faith. In other words, sadly, participating in church, attending religious education classes, and joining a parish youth group have little to no effect on whether young people sustain their faith into adulthood. The sacraments aren't magic. If your child received the Eucharist, or was confirmed without proper disposition, there is a good chance that he may not have applied the grace that flowed from the sacrament. Point B, like baptism, partaking of the Eucharist does not automatically guarantee eternal life in heaven. Freedom to break communion with the Lord remains throughout our lives. Not only this, but all children born into the church must personally choose to follow Christ, making the faith of their family their own. These concerns are are real and alive and well. Maybe you could even testify to it in the past or maybe tonight even that this is so. You're here because your child's going to be uh, receiving First Communion. Do you yourself have a relationship with Christ? Is there something that you could even give to your child in regards to the faith? Have you experienced him personally? Has he changed your life? And as we look at this, any encounter with Christ has to change us. It has to move us in some way, shape, or form. And so there's a concern that we think the sacraments are almost like magic. Like, well, I was I was baptized. Of course I'm going to heaven. Actually, no, the church would not tell you that. Baptism is not a guarantee. Receiving the Eucharist is not a guarantee. There has to be a real faith that's alive and active in the midst of that. There's all kinds of graces to be unlocked through baptism as an infant, if that's when you received it. But at some point, you have to make it your own. You have to have an encounter with Christ and a conversion, a change of heart. That may be radical or may be slightly and gradual over time, but something has to shake and move in you. Because as the scriptures would clearly tell us, we're dead in sin. Thus, we need to be resurrected. And if you're resurrected, you're going to be walking and thinking a lot differently than a dead person. And so there's a strong warning here uh, that I want to share, and it's under point B there from the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And this is what Jesus says to these folks. And he tells them, I never knew you. So even serving and doing good without a personal relationship with Christ is worthless. You have to know him. That's what should motivate you to do those things. If you're doing it because you're trying to get to heaven so that you're good would outweigh your bad, that's wrong. That's not how it works. Getting to heaven is a free gift. We can't earn it. Receiving salvation, the response to that is that we serve the Lord in doing so. So point C, the road that leads to eternal life is narrow, hard, and few find it. Disciples understand that it reaps abundant life now and forever. And they further realize that the good shepherd never asks us to do anything that he has not already done himself, namely, embrace his cross. When we are willing to die to ourselves and and submit to God's plan for our lives, we will ironically receive abundant life like never before. In other words, we have to follow the way of the cross. That that manner of choosing is, as it said there, hard, it's a narrow road, and few find it, versus the many that go the broad route and seek after things that are for this world. So, in other words, if you really want to be a disciple of Christ, you really want to go to heaven, you can expect it to be challenging because you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to want to choose his way of life. And in doing so, you're going to receive an abundant life, freedoms that you've never experienced before, joy that you cannot get any other way, a peace that surpasses understanding. But the only way to get to that is actually to choose to die to yourself, to embrace the cross and pick up your own and follow in his footsteps, which are not always pleasant. And he warns us clearly about those things. And so he even tells us to, to weigh out the cost. You know, really think about it. Do you really want to follow him? Do you really want to walk in his ways? Or do you just want to kind of go through the motions, go to church, check in, check out, try to do some good things and think that you're going to go to heaven and then get there in the end? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those things should grab our attention, should concern us a little bit, and make us think. It should slow us down and ask some questions that we'll look at here in a little while. So to get to the Eucharist, um, and Father jumped into some of my time, so we'll see how I can make it up. Uh, We need to really understand salvation. So that's point one here, understanding salvation, that it's about rescue and restore and putting this into the the context of of what we need to understand so that we can really appreciate the Eucharist when we get to it, understand what it is that we're approaching um, at Mass. So point A, the Word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with God, who loved us and sent His Son to to be the expiation for our sins. The Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world, and he was revealed to take away sins. Sick, our nature demanded to be healed. Fallen, to be raised up. Dead, to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it, since humanity was so was in so miserable and unhappy a state? This was our condition, sick and in need of healing. Have you come to the terms with that, that you're that sick, that you need healing from the sin, the disease of sin that leads to death? So the scripture tells the wages of sin is death. Did you know that's why death exists? That's why it is a thing. It's because of sin. Sin leads to death. We need to be rescued from that. Sin causes us to be a slave. Anyone who sins is a slave of sin. So we need this liberator. We need this one that's going to heal us and liberate us and rescue us. And of course, we know that's Jesus, but how is that impacting us and changing our life and our thinking? How is it reorienting us in some way, shape, or form? Jesus came to restore paradise. He came to bring back Eden and the garden and what they had in the beginning. Jesus came to restore paradise, to do what the first Adam failed to do, to give us all the opportunity to partake of eternal life. Salvation is about restoring all God's creational purposes. So it's not just about man. It's actually about man and the land. So if you'd actually look up that passage from Romans chapter 8, it talks about how the earth groans and longs for redemption, just like humans would. Everything needs to be restored and reconciled. And that's the beauty of Genesis to revelation and God's plan through his story to reconcile all those things and bring back Eden to restore a man's rightful place in the way he is to be. So salvation is a process that begins when a first when a person first becomes a Christian through repentance, faith, and baptism the process of ongoing conversion continues through the rest of one's life and culminates at the last judgment at the end of time. Now, that order would be more for an adult or someone that's uh, older, maybe not raised Catholic or baptized as an infant. If it was, it'd be the flip way around that. It'd be baptism first, then repentance, and faith. But all three of those have to come about in a life. So as I spoke about, if you were baptized as an infant, at what time then have you repented of your sins? At what time have you exercised true saving faith and realized that being baptized wasn't magic? The sacraments aren't magic. That isn't a golden ticket to heaven. You actually have to have faith. You actually have to repent of your sin, acknowledge that I've greatly sinned and offended God. Thus, he died on the cross for those sins. Have I repented of that? Have I told him I'm sorry? Have you told him that you love him? Any of these things, those are all signs of life that you've actually have real faith. And you're not just going through the motions of something. You're not sacramentalized only, but evangelized. Point C, the human heart is heavy and hardened. God must give man a new heart. Conversion is, first of all, a work of the grace of God who makes our hearts return to him. Restore us to thyself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Give us the strength to begin anew. It is in discovering the greatness of God's love that our heart is shaken by the horror and weight of sin and begins to fear offending God by sin and being separated from him. The human heart is converted by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced. Let us fix our eyes on Christ's blood and understand how precious it is to the Father. For poured out for our salvation it has brought To the whole world, the grace of repentance. Two things there. One, in the notes, as you see, CCC and then a number like 1432. Just to clarify what that is, that means the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And then it gives you the paragraph number. Every citation and everything that I'm reading from here comes right from the church's teaching. So none of this stuff is coming up from my own imagination or something I'm making up. I'm actually telling you what the church teaches about these things. It's calling you to these things, to conversion. It's saying that we have to get a new heart. Our heart is so corrupted that we need a new one. And granted, in baptism, that's what takes place. We're born again through baptism. We're washed. We're given eternal life. But then, as we've read, you can lose that. That has to be maintained. You have to become to repentance at some time and conversion. That child has to grow up and embrace this all as their own. You actually agree with what the church teaches and live it out. And so we have a challenge before us to realize these things. Point D, interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life. Have you had a radical reorientation of your whole life because of an encounter with Jesus? At some point? That's strong language. A radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an end of sin. A turning away from evil with repugnance toward the evil actions we have committed. Do you have that? Do you hate the sin that you do or have done? Are you repulsed? Do you get to confession regularly? Are you bothered by those things? Or do you just say, well, I'm not too bad compared to Joe, you know, and the things he does? Is there anything in you that convicts you of sin? If not, that's a sign that we need healing and awakening. We need conversion. We need to be evangelized. We need to come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and rescued from that. Point E, faith is a gift of God, a supernatural virtue infused by him. Before this faith can be exercised, man must have the grace to move, to move and assist him. He must have the interior helps of the Holy Spirit who moves the heart and converts it to God, who opens the eyes of the mind and makes it easy for all to accept and to believe the truth. It's very important that we understand this point. It's grace, it's a gift. You can't crank it up. God has to initiate to you, He has to give you the grace to respond and to believe. That's how dead we were. Dead, like a dead man in a casket, has to be miraculously raised up. God has to reach down and do that in each one of our lives. And if that hasn't happened, we're still dead. And we need to go, whoa. I think I might need to repent of my sins tonight. I might need to pray for the first time if I haven't, or I need to teach my children how to do that and understand that and grow in that. F, faith is a personal act, the free response of the human person to the invitation of God who reveals himself. But faith is not an isolated act. No one can believe alone, just as no one can live alone. You have not given yourself faith as you have not given yourself life The believer has received from others and should hand it on to others. Our love for Jesus and for our neighbor impels us to speak to others about our faith. Each believer is thus a link in the great chain of believers. I cannot believe without being carried by the faith of others. And by my faith, I help support others in the faith. So last time I taught, I talked about, could you just tell people, come and see. Could you tell someone that? Maybe you don't know how to talk to them fully about Jesus and, and the Bible, but could you just tell them, hey, come and see, come and, come and visit RCIA or some other activity at church or maybe the mass. Can you do that? Have you? Did you do that? Have you thought about doing that? Have you prayed about doing that? Those that were here the last time uh, I taught. Notice from, from what that said, that our love for Jesus and neighbor impels us You should be moved to want to do that. Do you want to tell anyone else about Jesus? Or do you want to keep it to yourself? Like, no, faith's private. We don't share it. No, that's not what the church says. The church says we should go out and shout it from the rooftops. And you shouldn't be like, um, feel guilty about that. Like, oh man, I'm just getting beat over the head that I should go out and tell people about Jesus. No, actually, you should be stirred to do it yourself. If you're not stirred, you need to ask why? Why am I not stirred? Do I have a faith that's alive? If it was alive, it would be stirring, you know, even a tiny bit. Like, yeah, I want to do that, but I'm scared. Or, yeah, I want to do that, but I don't know what to say. But if it's not stirring at all, are you alive? Have you come to know Jesus personally? Have you had that encounter and that conversion? Which leads us to 1.1, critical questions. These are the questions that you should ask yourself have I had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ? Can you say in some way your life is different because of a personal encounter with him? Examples of these would be the woman at the well, the paralytic that was let down through the roof, the sick and demon-possessed. So anytime those people encountered Jesus, their life was radically different. Some of them were average Joes. Some of them were in serious need. But if you were a paralytic... And you were healed. Do you think you could keep that to yourself? Would you just be excited as all get out and bubbling over to tell everybody in the world, I could not walk yesterday and now I can sprint, you know, 100 yard dash? That's what I'm talking about. That's how you should feel. Do you feel like that? That you've been raised from the dead, that you've been healed like a paralytic, that you were demon possessed and that was cast out, and now you have a right mind, and the joy you would feel and the peace. Has that happened to you? That's happened to me. That should happen to every one of us that's encountered Jesus Christ personally and truly and authentically. And so that's something to pray about if that's not happened. Have you come to believe that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, deathly sick, and in desperate need of healing? Do you believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, who died for our sins and the sins of the world, who rose from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven? Things that we just rattle off and repeat. Is it real? Do you really believe it? Has it changed you in any way? And here's the kickers. C, have you made a willful decision to follow Jesus Christ? Do you feel you have responded to a personal call, an invitation to follow him? Can you say you have a personal relationship with Jesus and you could articulate it to others? Are you compelled to tell others, like the woman at the well and the healed? They just naturally go out and do those things. But it's important, because this is the missing ingredient for those that have been sacramentalized and not evangelized, is they've never heard a personal call to follow Jesus Christ and responded to it, like intentionally. He's called me, and I responded to it. Well, guess what? He's calling you tonight to follow him. tonight. If you've never made the decision to follow him, now's the time. You can intentionally choose it. You have to do that at some point in time to actually come into a personal relationship with him. I don't care if you're baptized and confirmed and the whole nine yards. If you've never heard the call and truly responded to it to follow him, you need to. And the grace will be given to you to do that. So I challenge you to do that tonight. Point two, we're going to look at the creation story, salvation history very, very quickly just to try to get us um, set up to better appreciate the Eucharist. And so this is exciting for me, and I know not everyone is a a um, a nerd that likes to read the Bible front to back and really study it like I do, and that's okay. Not everyone needs to do that, um, but when you do, you mine out all this awesome stuff in there, and that's what I get the privilege to kind of talk about and share, because I am uh, I do that and then I get to share that stuff. So what's important to know is that this is a single book and it's one story it actually holds all together from genesis to revelation and i can prove that in a couple different ways one is you read here in genesis chapter one in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and then we read in revelation then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more you could also look at isaiah 65, which happens to be right in the middle of the Bible, says the exact same thing, prophesies that this is going to take place. So here we have creation in the beginning, new creation in the end. This book is held together by creation and new creation. And then there's all kinds of other themes that run Genesis to Revelation all the way through there, and we'll look at a few of those tonight. And here's what the Catechism says. All Scripture is but one book. See, I'm not making this stuff up. Church is teaching it. All Scripture is but one book, and that one book is Christ, because all divine scripture speaks of Christ, and all divine scripture is fulfilled in Christ. Both of those are important as we'll talk more. Notice what Jesus says here in Luke chapter twenty four. this was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples after the crucifixion. They didn't have a clue who he was um, because his his appearance was veiled to them. And he says to them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled, what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, Jesus just starts unpacking the Old Testament for him because we don't have a New Testament yet. He just, he just rose from the dead. They're not, they are not. haven't written any of that yet. He's unpacking the Old Testament as how it all speaks of him. It all points to him. So if we're going to really understand Jesus And in a sense, if we're really going to understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have to better understand the Old Testament. We have to understand salvation history to really get our head more around some of these mysteries. Uh, Point B, the church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. In other words, if if we don't know the Bible in some way, shape, or form, we don't really know Jesus, because that's the way we can really get to know Him, and who He is, and what He's done. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of depths that one could go to. You could say at the surface level, and you could go all the way down to a depth that I can't even plumb myself. That would be like someone like Saint Thomas Aquinas, who uh, his mind was brilliant, and and God gave him the abilities to really mine out things in ways that are. Uh, Amazing. And so, some of the things that you could think about are how can I start getting into the scriptures a little bit more than maybe just what I hear at Mass when I show up? And we get a lot of readings at Mass, and that's great. As noted here under point B, the church's daily lectionary readings will take you through the entire Bible in three years. So, if you just followed the Mass daily Mass readings every day, you'll get basically through the entire Bible in three years. That's what the lectionary moves us through. Now, granted, you're not reading every verse of every book, but you're getting the gist of all of it in three years. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church has hundreds of Scripture citations and references, and the Mass is saturated with Scripture. Everything we say and do is, is Scripture saturated. It is a is mind-blowing, and I'm sure Father will get to some of that when he does his um, lesson on the Mass, and he does a teaching Mass. And some of the books um, that I reference in the end, and I have a little show and tell up here that folks could take a peek at us, they wanted to as well, that really helps see um, some of those things. So point C, for this reason, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. You see how those both are are together. So we have the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, both The Lord and both uh, needed in our lives. Salvation history, typology. So, typology is super helpful, and the church has given it to us to really help us unpack some of these things. And here's what the church has to say about typology the church, as early as apostolic times and then constantly in her tradition, has illuminated the unity of the divine plan in the two testaments through typology. Which discerns in God's works of the Old Covenant, prefigurations of what he accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate son. Christians therefore read the Old Testament in light of Christ crucified and risen. Such typological reading discloses the inexhaustible content of the Old Testament, but it must not make us forget that the Old Testament retains its own intrinsic value as revelation reaffirmed by our Lord himself. Besides, the New Testament has to be read in light of the old. Early Christian catechesis made constant use of the Old Testament. As the old saying put it, the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the new. And so you still might be wondering, well, what's typology? What are you even talking about here? And so we'll look at a few of of those things. Uh, Typology is just, there's a type, within the Old Testament that helps unpack some of who Christ is and what he's done. So in the Old Testament, we really have a a treasure, a multifaceted, inexhaustible treasure that we can continue to turn and look at through these different facets and just get blown away um, as we get insights into Christ, into his sacrifice, into who he is and what he's done. What was already prophesied that would come about hundreds of years in advance, These kinds of things really help us start appreciating uh, him and, in particular, the Eucharist of what we'll look at tonight. So 3.1, tree of life. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have the tree of life. And you're probably familiar with the tree of good and evil. That's what they ate of, and then they died. And when they did that, God protected them from the tree of life. There was a cherubim there that kept them from eating of the tree of life because he says in the book of Genesis, if they would eat of that, then they're going to live forever in that condition. Thus, we're going to block them off from the tree of life and we're going to exile them out of Eden. They're going to be exiled out. So the tree of life is going to be another one of these connecting points from Genesis to Revelation, because guess what? We find it in Genesis and we also find it in the book of Revelation. And those passages are cited for you right there. So Genesis 2, 9. Genesis 3, 22 through 24, and then Revelation 2:7 as well as Revelation 22:2. 2. All those passages refer to the tree of life, connecting the Bible from front to back. Point A, the tree of life is a key that connects the story of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. We find it in the opening and closing chapters of the Bible. The book of Genesis reveals this mystical tree to signify how the Lord God wanted to share his divine life and the book of Revelation shows that Christ's cross invites each one of us to enter into the mystery of salvation. This takes place on the altar at Mass, where we personally experience the transformative effects of Christ's cross as the tree of life and his body and blood as its fruit. The tree of life is about a participation in the Lord's life. The author of Genesis presents the tree of life as a specific tree that the Lord created in order to give us a share in his immortal life. Christ's cross is the tree of life, and he is the fruit. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, Jesus said in John 6, 54. The Eucharist is the immortal fruit of the tree. The tree of the cross has borne a fruit that gives eternal life unto the world. As we eat of it, O Christ, we are delivered from death, St. Ephraim. Quote right there. So here the tree of life helps us start understanding more about Christ, more about why he would say things like he did, like if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you. What is he trying to get at? Well, in the background are things like the tree of life, and this is where typology starts helping us appreciate and understand some things. 3.2 Melchizedek Melchizedek is an interesting character, and we don't know a whole lot about him, but the New Testament makes a big deal about him in this way. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, and a priest of God Most High who brought out bread and wine and blessed Abraham, for his name means king of righteousness, also king of Salem, means king of peace. The new covenant requires a new priesthood, And that priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, who is both king and priest, creates a new covenant in his blood. And like the old covenant, is accompanied by eating and drinking. Notice the correlations with Melchizedek. And that's why the author of Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this. He brings out bread and wine. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? He's a king and he's a priest. We have some interesting things here. Point B, because Jesus is offering of Calvary enters into the time-transcendent heavenly sanctuary, it is an everlasting offering and therefore continues forever. In addition, because his sacrifice is not time-bound and thus continues forever, Jesus enables heaven and earth to intersect, empowering his church on earth to both represent and to partake of his self-offering under the sacramental forms of bread and wine that is according to the order of his Melchizedekian priesthood. Mind-blowing. So we, we start getting into how Christ could be represented at Mass, and we'll talk a little more about this in the memorial sacrifice portion of it. But you start seeing how heaven and earth intersect because his offering is outside time and space, it enters into the eternal now. It's it's a mystery. Uh, beyond comprehension. That's what we're starting to go into at Mass. So we need to wake up a little bit in the sense of what we're doing when we go to Mass, and we'll talk about some exciting things with that. Notice uh, letter C, and you hear this in the Mass. So in Eucharistic Prayer 1, towards the end of it, it says, be pleased to look on these offerings with your serene and kindly countenance and to accept them as you are pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel, the just, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in the faith, And the offering of your high priest, Melchizedek, a holy sacrifice, a spotless victim. There it is, Melchizedek. Genesis 14, Hebrews 7, that's where that comes from. Abel, you familiar with Cain and Abel? Abel's reference. Why? How how is his um, offering associated with Jesus? Well, he offered the best. And the first, and then we'll talk about Abraham right here next. 3.3. The only son important to understand with Isaac that he's considered the only son, even though Abraham did have another son, Ishmael. But when God refers to his son, he calls Isaac the only son. He's this unique son. And there's some correlations that are important because of that. Point A, Jesus is the unique and promised son, like Isaac, who would be offered on the altar, bringing to fulfillment the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through his seed. So I don't know if you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, but Isaac was taken up on Mount Moriah by command of God that Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. And so we have a bunch of typology with Isaac that needs to be unpacked. And we see a little bit of that here in point B. The event surrounding Abraham's sacrifice prefigures Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. God the Father offers up his only beloved son, Jesus, in Jerusalem, a city associated with Moriah, and the very place where Abraham offered up Isaac. Like Isaac, Jesus travels to this place on a donkey, and like Isaac, he carried the wood of the cross to Calvary. There, like Isaac, Jesus is willingly bound to the wood and offered as a sacrifice. There's so much uh, typology and correlations with Isaac and Jesus. Isaac carried the wood on his back up Mount Moriah with Abraham. And he asked his dad on the way up, well, you know what's going to be the sacrifice? Because he knew they were going up there to sacrifice. And Abraham told him that the Lord would provide, even though the Abraham knew he was going to be the sacrifice when we get up there. And then when they got up there, Isaac understood that, he was going to be the sacrifice. And he was a he was not a little boy. He could have taken his dad. His dad was a real old man at that time. He could have, he could have whipped him, no problem. But Isaac lays down on the altar and lets him tie him up. He willingly did it. And then when Abraham went to kill him, the angel told him to stop because he knew at that point, right there, that Abraham was fully and totally committed to God. He had had an encounter and a conversion, and that's what true saving faith looks like. And so at that point, it stopped, and then there was a ram in the thicket that they took out, and they offered that and sacrificed it. Well, with Christ, the knife came down, and he died for us. So the typology ends at that point, because it was completed. But it's all typology to help us understand. I mean, get in the mind of that dad. And think about this. And Isaac, like, I'm going to willingly do this and trust God spoke to my dad about all this and it's going to be all okay in the end of the day. I mean, these kinds of things uh, are moving and help us in a lot of ways. So 3.4, Passover lamb, this this one's huge. So point eight for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. That's from First Corinthians chapter five. So the Apostle Paul says, Christ is our Passover. Okay, what does that mean, that Christ is the Passover lamb? I guess I need to understand what the Passover lamb is, so I can better understand what that means. The New Testament reveals Jesus to be the Passover lamb sacrificed on Calvary for our sins. Eating the sacrificial lamb was an essential part of the Passover celebration. A communal meal followed the sacrifice, and it was a a shared meal that expressed the sealing of the covenant and forge communion between the participants and God. The Eucharist takes us to a level beyond time and space, entering into the eternal, where communion becomes the most profound union we can have with God, penetrating to mind, body, and soul. Understanding the Passover helps us better understand the Eucharist, and in particular, that the Passover lamb needs to be eaten, and that there's this communion meal around it that unites And so there's some key components there that we need to understand when it comes to how we celebrate the Eucharist and how this is all in the background to help us really appreciate what we do when we get to Mass and partake of Christ, who's the Passover lamb. More to come. Point B, it's fitting we address Jesus in the Mass saying, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. For the New Testament reveals Jesus as the new Passover lamb who was sacrificed for our our sake. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slain and conquer Satan. I think the book of Revelation refers to the lamb like 20, 20 plus times. I mean, it's just saturated with this lamb language. Well, where does that come from? It's coming from the book of Exodus and understanding the Passover lamb. Point C. In another link from the Passover lamb, John's gospel notes that when the soldiers took Jesus down from the cross, they did not break his legs, as was ordinarily done to ensure that the person was dead. John points this out because the Passover lamb was supposed to be the one whose bones were not broken. Jesus' death is portrayed as the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. So that's why he tells us that. Did you know that? That's why they didn't break his legs? Because he's fulfilling the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. So his legs were not going to be broken in fulfillment of that. That note's just not in the Bible, just randomly. It's intentionally there to help us make the connection points. He is this Passover lamb. It's his blood that spread over the door so that the past, the destroying angel goes over us and we're not destroyed. Okay. The manna and we're at, way we past time. All right, I'm gonna skip the manna and the day of atonement and we'll take a break. And you have the notes on those things that you can look at. I think you get the gist of uh, typology. And how much is there? And I've not even I've not even touched the surface. Like I've just given you a few of them. There's there's tons and tons more of those. So we'll take a little break and then we'll come back. We'll look at uh, the Eucharist Source and Summit, Memorial Sacrifice, and the real presence. All right.